Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast. There's no interview this week. I figured with two videos, each over an hour long last week, I'd give everybody a break. But still a bunch of cool news to talk about and some Q&As as always. First up, in case you guys hadn't seen, I actually joined a podcast with a bunch of other guys from the retro gaming scene. Renee from DV Electronics, Nick and Steve from HD Retrovision, and Zach Voltar. We're going to be doing a monthly podcast uh, that's about mid-month, I guess, we're going to aim for. And we're always going to do it live so people could jump in and ask questions and kind of interact with us. But they'll always also be available to watch afterwards, both as videos or as a podcast for people that just like to listen while they drive and stuff. Um, And I I really had a great time doing it. Uh, That podcast is going to be really tech-centered. Although we tried to keep the first one as general as possible, we're really going to use that one to dig in on some serious technical issues, and it's really kind of by nerds for nerds, which, you know, I don't mean to exclude anybody else, but we just really want this one to be digging in, and I I just want to warn everybody in advance that's going to be really nerdy. Whereas, you know, this one I just try to keep general, you know, mention the news, occasionally have a guest on where we get a little nerdy, but... Uh, everybody that participated seemed to enjoy it. I really appreciate everybody jumping in and, uh, and kind of hanging out with us. And it seemed to go great, except for one little thing. Um, I ran the thing through OBS, and what I saw on my screen looked perfect, but I couldn't have YouTube and Twitch up because I didn't know how to interact between all three without screwing something up. So the other guys had those up uh, so they could answer questions and things like that in the chats. And nobody told me that you could see my second camera in the bottom of the stream window because I couldn't see it in OBS. So uh, Nick, Steve, Renee, and Zach, thanks, guys. Thanks for making me look like a dick. Really appreciate that. Way to be a team player. Another pretty huge update to the Analog NT Mini. It now plays Game Boy Color and Game Boy games through it, both in RGB and in HDMI. So all of the video settings still work with it if you're going through HDMI, so you could stretch it 5x, and um, it is still FPGA-based. It's not like a software emulator running on top of it, and it's really, really impressive. You just need to download the BIOS files and name them properly, stick them in, and it works great. So I'm very excited, and uh, I guess every week Kevin's going to be adding different cores to it. So uh, I just I can't wait to see what comes out of it next, because this thing is starting to become a really, really capable machine. Next up, the Behar brothers seem to have been making good progress on the consoleized Game Gear, and it's so far looking like this is going to be a really awesome solution for people that want to play their original Game Gear carts plugged into an RGB monitor. So I'll keep everybody updated on the progress and when it's available for pre-order or just direct sale. Next, it seems that somebody got their Nintendo Switch delivered in the mail early. So I guess this happens every now and then. Companies will put the wrong box on the wrong pile, and this guy opened one up and was pretty shocked to see it. So he did an unboxing video and everything, and one of the notable things that he had seen was that 
it seems that your purchases from the eShop are now tied to your username and not tied to the console, which is something that always really baffled me. If I buy it, it should follow me, not the console I put it on. But uh, I'm glad to see that Nintendo is updating their policies with that, and I guess I'll be getting one myself in a couple of weeks. Next, there's been a price cut to the Neo Geo Pocket Flash card called the Flash Master. Um, it's now under $49 for just the circuit board itself, and I think about 10 bucks more if you want it in a case. So this is cool. This is a pretty huge price reduction. So if somebody was looking for one of these right away, I'd definitely recommend it. I believe this one only allows you to put one or two ROMs on it at a time, but for that price, I mean, that's it's well worth it. There is another one coming out probably by the end of the year that's SD-based, but my guess would be that it's probably going to be double the cost because there's more, you know, more involved in it. So I guess, in my opinion, it'd be a price and availability thing. If you want it right now, or if you don't mind flashing one at a time and you want the cheaper price, this is the one to get. If you're one of those people that just wants to load the entire ROM set on it and then walk away and never pay attention again, I guess wait for the other one coming out. But either way, this is a great option. Um, or if you're just impatient, buy both. Buy this one now and buy the other one later. Um, they also have an announcement that their Game Pi Advance, which uh, looks like a Game Boy Advance but has the Raspberry Pi inside and runs the emulation stuff, that's up for pre-order again as well. And I was actually wrong about that. I thought they were gutting Game Boy Advances, but they're using um, reproduction shells and the aftermarket screens with it and everything. So that's great news. Um, they're not wasting anybody's Game Boy Advance. They're just putting it in that really great case. I mean, it's obviously preference, but I think that the Game Boy Advance shell is one of the most comfortable handhelds out there. So the fact that they're doing a, a cool little emulation thing in it, uh, I thought it was a good choice. So I'll have links to both of those in the description for anybody interested. Next, there's an update to Ozone's Dreamcast HDMI project. So this is the digital-to-digital -digital one that's going to be installed inside a Dreamcast, not the external box. Um, and there's, there, I guess, the project had kind of been put on hold for a little while for a number of reasons, um, and now they're back into it, uh, and it looks like it, they're at the last revision of the prototypes. So hopefully this is a good sign, and it means we'll be able to get an internal digital-to-digital um, -digital Dreamcast HDMI mod soon. There's no telling which of the features are actually going to be making the, the main production version. I do know that um, I, I spoke to Ozone, and he said that this is something that he hoped to release and then add more features as it went along. So just because it releases with one set of features doesn't mean you might not get more in the future. Um, I guess that remains to be seen. But anytime there's a, a pre-order or, or if it's just ready for purchase, I'll definitely let everybody know. But it's my guess that this would still months away before that happens. But at least the progress picked up again and the project's still moving forward because... You know, the more choices we have for things like this, the better. I know the Acura is coming out soon, the, the analog to digital one from the Behar Brothers, which is just a plug-and-play solution. Uh, this one has to be installed internally, so the more options we all have, the better. Um, there's Everybody's scenario is different, and uh, I'm looking forward to testing them both and seeing how they work in, uh, in all the different scenarios I can throw at them. Akari just posted a guide on the circuitboard.de forums to fix the audio output of that Hydra SCART switch. So I guess, I'm not sure if it was a design or a manufacturing issue, but um, there were a few issues with it where you would get some kind of audio feedback. So Akari posted a guide for the fix, uh, and if you purchase one of those, it's pretty much a must-do, or I guess you could have audio issues. Um, the Hydra is that 8-2 to SCART switch that's kind of like... 
I mean, it's kind of a copy of the G-Scart switch. Sorry to be disrespectful, but it's pretty much what it is. <laughs> um, uh, and it's uh, it's pretty much the same price point and the same thing as the G-Scart switch Lite, which is, uh, I think that'll be available for sale very soon. So, um, and the G-Scart, as far as I know, hasn't had any audio problems yet. So uh, I guess if you've bought a Hydra, definitely do the fix to it. Uh, and if you were looking to uh, purchase a Switch soon, I would either wait till those audio issues were fixed or just pick up one of the G-SCART ones, which should be available pretty quickly. Next, Renee from DV Electronics posted a video showing how his Teensy cartridge dumper works. So basically, it's one main PCB, and then you could plug in adapters that have different cartridge inputs on it, and then you plug that into your PC. And this way, you could dump both the ROM and the save file from any of the cartridges you own. So it's a handy tool to have if you ever need save game dumping or cartridge dumping, and it's something I'm probably going to play with a lot, but mostly use it to back up my save files. So I know it's kind of cheesy to buy something just to back up your save files, but for whatever crazy reason, it's important to me. Too Quick Capri tipped me off that there's now an RGB mod for a Magnavox Odyssey 2 console, which is pretty neat. Um, I guess somebody on the Atari Age forums is selling just the board, and you have to populate the board yourself and then install it. But it's pretty cool that uh, they're just finding every console you could imagine and doing RGB mods to it. So uh, I've never even used an Odyssey 2, but if I ever get my hands on one, obviously I'm going to have to RGB mod it. Now on to the Q&As. I wanted to start by addressing somebody that was posting in the NT Mini review, um, and I guess they were pretty upset that the NT Mini now plays ROMs and basically said that it's stealing, that anybody that does that is just condoning software piracy, and they got very colorful and upset, and I, I started teasing them, and I probably shouldn't have, but I guess the whole point was that they work in the video game industry and feel like things like this, or people who promote things like this, are, are really killing the industry. And I couldn't possibly disagree more, and I think there's an excellent chance that they were trolling. Um, so if they were trolling, you know, I, I guess you got me. I guess you won because you got me to talk about it. But if you really were concerned, there's a few things you got to remember. Um, first of all, the well, first and foremost, these are my opinions. So I have nothing to do with Analog or Keptris. I don't speak for them. I just speak for myself and my opinions. But the Nintendo hardware... Uh, the patent's expired, so it is 100% legal to make these clone consoles. Um, and also, uh, all of the cores that Keptris has loaded up, I believe the patents are all expired on those too, so it's totally legal to make the hardware part. As for the software part, to give somebody the ability to play ROMs, but not provide them with ROMs, or not provide them with any intellectual property owned by the companies, I'm pretty sure is not illegal. And you could argue that to the point that, you know, if you see, if I did a review on these steak knives that I loved, um, you could kill somebody with a knife, but that's not what my review would have been about, and that's not what the intention is, so you can't sue somebody for reviewing steak knives or for selling steak knives. So it's the same thing. The, you know, here's what it's designed for, you know, I'm going to review it based on that, and then go from there. So any of your legal warrants are just total bullshit. And, uh, like, period. End of story. So, maybe I'm wrong, and I hope to get uh, a lawyer on here soon to talk about lots of these things, but if you don't sell anything that has anybody else's stuff on it, you're just selling your own shit, there's nothing illegal about that. As far as condoning software piracy and all that stuff, 
your average gamer that buys these things, that spends a ton of money to buy ROM carts and consoles, will dump the entire ROM collection on it because I would say 90% because they want to know they're all there in case they ever have the urge to play one, but also it's a preservation thing. I mean, tons of us have spent countless hours making sure these things survive forever, even after the hardware is gone eventually. So, um, and on top of that, I mean, I own like five copies of Sonic the Hedgehog, and I continue to buy new versions of it when it comes out if it's a different way. So I have the original console or cartridge for it, and then I also have it on my phone because I thought it was neat when that came out. I got to play Sonic on the go, and I bought it on my 3DS because I wanted to see how they did with the 3D translation, which was very cool. And then, of course, when I got an Amazon Fire TV, I wanted to see how they did it in 16 by 9 on a big TV. So... I'm obviously, <laughs> to say that if you own a ROM set, you're not going to buy anybody's newer versions or the virtual console versions, that's also a little bit uh, inaccurate for most of the people that I know. Um, and as far as collecting, new game stores are popping up daily, uh, new retro game stores. So if these ROM carts were taking away from that, it literally, it would be impossible to survive. You know, mod chips have been around forever and people still bought original games, and generally speaking, your average person who uses or who collects video games will still buy a ROM cart and use that because they don't want to uh, end up messing up one of their cartridges by accident. I know for sure that's what I do. Um, when I had a normal size apartment, I had all my uh, SMS 3D games. I actually have two of some of them. Um, and I wouldn't use those. I would use the ROMs because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to keep using them over and over, plugging them in and out of cartridges, or uh, consoles. I go through consoles like crazy because I always like testing new stuff and you know, giving them to my friends, getting another one, doing a new mod. So I just, I wouldn't want to risk it. But now that all my stuff's in storage and I'm living in a smaller place, I own all those carts. So to play them on a ROM cart is just convenience for me. And I haven't stolen anything. So, uh, yeah, that's... And I, almost everybody I know is the same way about that stuff. Any game that's important to them, they have to own. Or a lot of people I know just like collecting this stuff. And lastly, uh, which I'm sure this person's going to disagree with as well, I love homebrew and the hacks, which that is the only thing, technically speaking, is illegal. It's against the rules. You're taking somebody else's intellectual property and modifying it for yourself. Um, it You shouldn't, I mean, I don't, I don't really know how that works as far as the legalities of it. I hope to have a lawyer on soon to talk about all this stuff. But that is the one thing, though, that you can't get. You can't buy the original cartridges of, like, a lot of these ROM hacks. And to be able to play them is just phenomenal. Like, I'm still playing. I almost beat Legend of Link. That's freaking awesome. All of the MSU1 audio hacks are just incredible. So, you know, there's just always new things popping up and not once have I seen any of these new items take away from the old you know no one's going to buy a ROM cart but then not buy or, or go sell their favorite game or something at least I said no one I, most people most people so I guess I hope I wasn't rambling too much through all that I just in, in the very slim chance that this wasn't a troll and this was somebody that actually does care and was uh, offended that offended and afraid that you know his business that he loves is going to be crumbling because of these things it's just not the case then time has proven that not just my opinions i mean mod chips have been out since the 90s people still buy playstation 1 2 and sega cd games and stuff so 
but if anybody disagrees with me, uh, definitely post in the comments. I always love opposing opinions. Not when they're, you know, mean and filled with profanity and trolling like the other guy, but whatever. I mean, it's still valid. It, eventually, he might have had a valid point, which is why I continue to engage him. But I don't know. Hopefully, he's watching this and will actually post a calm response. Or he's just a troll and he's won. So... Next, a few people had actually posted in regards to the NT Mini's Famicom port and back. I had shown in the video that the Famicom 3D glasses might actually get in the way and you wouldn't be able to plug the power in, but a few people pointed out that you should probably be able to use a Neo Geo extension, a controller extension. So I haven't had a chance to test one out yet, uh, and if anybody does, please let me know how it works um, and if the extra length affects it at all, but it seems like a pretty cool idea. Next, the importer asked, do you think any CD-based console can have a disk drive emulator, like the ones for Dreamcast and Saturn? If not, why? And for example, why don't we have one for the PS2? I know you could run some games from the hard drive, but that's not 100% compatible. So, uh, good questions, and uh, I think I have to address a few different things. So for the PS2, I've had excellent luck running it off of hard drives. Um, I've even seen people, instead of using a hard drive, they do a converter and use an SSD or an SD card. I think an SSD is probably the best way to do it overall. Um, and I know that a lot of games require patching for that to work. But I don't know if, uh, I don't know the full incompatibility list. I just know I've had great luck with mine. Um, you know, not too many issues at all, and all, as long as I have applied the patches. Um, and as far as... Uh, you know, would it be possible for every console? I believe it would. I think it might be harder to make a CD-based optical drive emulator than the, or a, a, a optical drive emulator for CDs as opposed to a ROM cart. And I could be wrong. I'm not a software programmer. Maybe I'm just talking out of my ass here. It's just the impression I get is it's a little bit harder to do that. Um, and I assume that eventually there will be ODEs for every console. You know, they have the uh, PS1. Uh, 3DO, and I think even the CDI might actually have one coming as well. So I really hope that people are able to make them for all consoles, uh, both because, you know, it's easier to play the games that way, but also for preservation. Um, you know, a lot of these CD assemblies just, uh, they're starting to die really quickly, and you're not, it's harder to find replacements, and it's going to continue to be harder to find replacements. So for the same reasons I love ROM carts, I would much rather play my games off of an SD card and that way I don't, I don't wear out the lasers, I still have my original games on the shelf. So um, I, I don't know if there's any reason why it wouldn't be possible for every CD-based console. I just really hope people start making them and selling them quickly, because I think those are things that everybody appreciates. Mark Pitos had a good question, and I don't think I know the answer well enough, so um, I'll say what I think, but maybe you guys could chime in in the comments below and help. But his question is... Um, he was wondering if there's a rule of thumb for filling the screen on a BVM or any CRT with stretching adjustments. For example, when a console play, displays less than 320 by 240 inside a 240p image, like the SNES at 256 by 224, if that SNES image is stretched, stretched to fill the screen, it's no longer a 4 by 3 ratio. And basically he wants all of his consoles to fill as much of the screen as possible, but doesn't want to ruin the aspect ratio. What would myself or somebody like Firebrand X do? Well, um, it's a good question. Maybe Wolf will comment on that um, from his perspective. 
the way I've been doing it, uh, I was lucky enough to get a D-series BVM, which has its own built-in um, geometry that you calibrate to. So I calibrated to that, uh, and then I loaded up a game and made sure the calibration was fine, and then I kind of just stretched it a little bit. Uh, and it looks, in my, to my eyes, it looks perfect. Um, I didn't see any weird issues. You know, the geometry looked fine. It didn't, you know, it's not like when you stretch something from 4x3 to 16x9 and everybody gets weird. That, that seemed to work fine for me. Um, so what does everybody else suggest? You know, is that, uh, it's something I actually talked to Artemio about, you know, uh, when we were calibrating. Do you, if you don't have a built-in grid, do you load up, like, the SNES 256x224 and calibrate to that? Um... Maybe in a perfect world, you'd get one mo one monitor for every console or something like that, or one configuration if you could save multiple. So I really don't know what the right answer is or if there is a right answer. So if you guys want to post down below and, and let me know what you're doing, um, maybe there's a better practice to always follow than what I've been doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe we could just figure this all out together to try to get the best little tweaks for all of our consoles. Next, Mad Mad had a question about the NT Mini. He realizes that the NES uh, side of it is FPGA-based hardware emulation, not software, but he wanted to know uh, what about all the other things that are being loaded on it. You know, is it like GameCube on Wii, or is it like SNES on PSP? Um, well, it's a good question. Um, so it's not like SNES on PSP. It is not software emulation. All of the consoles that are able to be played on the NT Mini are uh, FPGA cores that it's the actual hardware is being emulated. So the example you used of GameCube on Wii, uh, I guess which is the same as like Master System on Genesis, uh, that's not emulation of any kind, that the original chips are actually in there. Same with PS1 on PS2. So that's that's basically the original hardware. Um, this is FPGA-based for all of them, so I guess the best way to think of it is hardware emulation for all of them, um, which means it's a great experience. And I've been playing through, um, you know, using the original console for half a game and then hitting a save point and swapping to the NT Mini and playing the other half of the game on that, and it's it's been... I mean, I haven't detected any differences at all. It's been pretty incredible. The only differences I would notice is, like, with the SMS, which has a you know, a pretty noisy video output versus the Mini, which is crystal clear. So, um, I mean, it's, I know it sounds like I'm gushing over it, and no, Analog didn't pay me, I didn't get a free one or anything like that. I bought it just like everybody else, but I do love it. I think it is just the, the perfect thing for people that don't want, or at least don't have the money and the space for every single one of those consoles. Buying this, loading the jailbreak firmware, and using these cores is, as far as I'm concerned, close to an identical experience, especially if you can get uh, cartridge adapters or um, um, actual like controller adapters for it, not cartridge adapters. Those two, I guess, though. So uh, yeah, short answer to your question, it's all hardware emulation, no software. Next, Codemaster V posted a link to an open source Xbox Live project, so that way you could still play your original Xbox if it's been modded um, over the internet through other people. So, I uh, always love to see stuff like this. I remember when the original Xbox was out, I used some kind of, uh, some software that basically treated over-the-internet connections as if it was on a LAN. It wasn't just a VPN, it was designed specifically for it. So, I guess these things have been around forever, and I just really haven't been keeping up. But, I hope to someday go back and add a very detailed Xbox page to the site as well. 
Next, Dan Mons posted about preserving CRTs and uh, how the retro gaming community could get behind this and really stop a lot of great CRTs from going to the uh, the dump. And he linked to a video that's kind of horrifying of people ripping apart CRTs and sending them down an assembly line for junking. But um, I agree 100%, and I, I'd like to try it. Uh, uh, my website's going to be overhauled very soon, and as soon as it's done, I want to get lists of the best CRTs to RGB mod, guides on how to do it for each one of them, and then put people in touch with each other for help with this. Um, there is the CRT collective group on Facebook, but I hate Facebook, and I hate to break it to everybody, but that's going to be gone in 10 years anyway, just like MySpace and AOL and everything before it. <laughs> I want, a, I want a, a final place where everybody could go that will last forever. Um, and I'm getting, you know, retro RGB 2.0 set up so that it will last forever and pay for itself and everything. So even if I get hit by a meteor, the thing will go on forever without me. So um, start taking notes and uh, anybody that's doing CRT modding, um, you know, write down which models are the one that you're doing, write down your results, and very soon I'll be able to compile it all into one place, uh, like Wikipedia style, so we could all share for free and have it all up there forever. And lastly, Dan actually posted again uh, and posted a long, detailed explanation of RGB versus component. Uh, and it was a great post for anybody that's interested in these things. Um, and I get the differences when using things like uh, image processing and Photoshop and stuff like that. Uh, it's still a bit confusing to me when it comes to video games and how the colors are processed. Um, and I, I'm just now starting to grasp the difference. And of course, you know, the number one thing when doing any kind of conversion is how good the converter is, of course. But um, I asked Nick from HD Retrovision to kind of jump on and discuss this with me, because obviously he's got a pretty deep background in, in converting RGB to component, um, and to talk about the differences, uh, and especially, most specifically, the 444 versus 422 color. Because um, while I, I'm sort of have a grasp on it. I really kind of just needed somebody else's perspective on it to, to keep it into place. Um, so hopefully you guys enjoy it and uh, we all learn a little something. All right, guys, I have Nick from HD Retrovision here talking with me about color space because, to put it bluntly, I still have no clue what I'm talking about. I think I just have a basic grasp of this now. And the problem that I have, and I think the reason I'm having such a hard time, is there's different scenarios in which it matters and doesn't matter. So uh, I think I'm going to just kind of word vomit here, Nick, and could you just jump in and interrupt me if you uh, agree, disagree, or if something needs to be re-explained? Sure. All right, thank you. Um, so basically, as far as the difference between RGB and component for analog signals like 240p and 480i, what we would mostly see in the retro gaming world, um, there is really no difference in quality at all. There's no compression being done when going between, and it's kind of like it's a math formula, which is the difference between the two. So when going from RGB to component, it's like uh, if I were to call up Mikael and say, hey man, what's 2 plus 2? And he turns to his buddy and asks that in French, um, unless he very badly screws something up, 2 plus 2 is always going to make 4, no matter how you translate it. Uh, is that correct? That's exactly right. There's no real fundamental difference between RGB uh, and YPBPR other than this completely invertible process um, 
the, the, as you say, it's just a translation between the two mathematically. Um, now, where the there is some kind of color that you have to add to that, um, or caveats that you have to add to that, is if that process is implemented poorly, uh, as I've seen on equipment before, where they may have just um, used the wrong matrix to translate between the two, mm-hmm. that can cause issues. And then there are also uh, issues around finite precision math. So, you know, theoretically, you're, you do these computations, you get, a, you know, a decimal number. And if you're writing that on a piece of paper, you can write your decimal number as long as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, your computer is going to cut it off somewhere. So there is a little bit of room for error. I mean, it's probably not much as long as it's implemented in a reasonable way um, that those two are are functionally equivalent representations of an image. Right. So, so barring just a, a terrible translation, so like if, uh, if Mikael turned to his friend and say, hey, what's 2 plus 10 <laughs> instead of 2 plus 2, uh, barring a, a terrible translation, um, you know, it, it's really not an issue. And I think the reason that there's been confusion about this is because of things like the CSY clone that's out there, which I have personal experience with and I hate because when you plug in your RGB SCART cable, um, it outputs something that looks very different, and you have to tweak the pots. And anytime you tweak pots in analog signals, I don't like that. It should be it should be a set level. There should be something, you know. So I think that's you know that's step one. Is as long as it's done correctly, it should look exactly the same. I think step two is how um, how digital processors accept this signal. So things like OSSC, FrameMeister, and lots of capture cards. Because, uh, now once again, I don't know if I have the correct grasp on this, but um, so 444 uh, with a colon in between is the full RGB color space. Um, and processors might compress the second two sets of colors based on a theory that maybe your, your, or probably your eyes, once you're far enough away, aren't going to be able to discern a difference. And the reason that they would do that is just like any other kind of compression, the least amount of data coming through, the easier it is to process that image. Um, and then you have things like, you know, certain capture cards and the FrameMeister that use 422. Um, and then things like the OSSC that just keeps it in 444 the whole time. Is that an accurate grasp of this? Right. So I think a lot of the, the misunderstanding um, as to where people come across with the perception that RGB and YPBR, um, PBPR are different is that with RGB, you're never going to do any compression. So you can say it's 444, but RGB, for all purposes, is always going to be the full images for each of the red, green, and blue. Mm-hmm. The whole purpose in going to component, or one of the purposes in going to component, is that the PB and PR images contain not that much interesting information. They're very smooth um low information images that can be compressed without impacting your visual system. And that has to do with the fact that our eyes are very receptive to changes in brightness, but not very receptive to changes in color. So when you're in that color space, you can do things like take the PB and PR images and cut them in half or even one fourth if you're talking about going to 420. Now, whether that is something that you can see on the TV, um, it's intended to be so that you're not able to perceive that difference. Um, now, if you were to capture images, put them on your computer, 
jam your face up and then zoom in at the pixel level, yeah, you're going to see differences, especially in areas where there are uh, noticeable changes in color. So even doing that and looking at a background image where, you know, you have a nice blue wall, like uh, my wall here, that's constant, you would never not see any changes due to uh, 422 or 420. But if you were to look at regions like kind of the border between my door here and the blue wall, that's where you might start seeing it look like a less sharp edge and more kind of a, a smeary um, image at the pixel level. Now you zoom back out to where you're supposed to be sitting for a, a reasonably sized image, you should not really be able to detect those differences. So that explains why most processors um, would would uh, would use 422 or 420 because especially for things like movies, I don't think you're going to be able to grasp details like that. For for solid color things like video games or I guess even for like Pixar movies, um, <clears throat> I know there's most of us. Most people probably wouldn't know the difference, but there are those of us that, especially if you work in the industry of any kind where you, you need to look at details, like I know for a fact that when I used the OSSE for the first time, I just so happened to be testing a Framemeister. I'd been playing through a game for a few days, and then uh, my OSSE shows up in the mail, so I unplug my console from the Framemeister, plug it into the OSSE, and I noticed an immediate difference, and I didn't know... <clears throat> Excuse me, I didn't understand what I was seeing. Somebody had to explain to me that it was the color space difference. And that's when I started, that's when I got a different capture card that could accept 444. And that's when I really started to understand the differences. But I know, uh, I guarantee you, Fuda, if, if you took him across the room and he looked at a, a calibrated good TV, not, you know, a junk Walmart brand for 100 bucks, and, you know, you put certain things through it, uh, it is something that some people can tell. And I think that's kind of the the reason a lot of us are trying to to just strive for the best and to try to push through all these things and understand the differences. So yeah. So, the, so with respect to that, there, there is, um, I guess, an additional thing to mention is that a lot of this theory behind uh, not being able to notice these differences, um, and actually more in general theory in terms of image and video processing is all really centered around natural images. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of, a lot of that stuff goes out the window when you're talking about 16 bit artificially generated images, it's not the same type of content. Mm -hmm. um, this is exactly, and I, we talked about this in our podcast this past weekend is your TV is doing uh, an upscaling process that is designed to deal with um, real-world images. It's not going to do this nearest neighbor blocky image upscaling where you you know you take your single pixel and blow it up four times or eight times, you know whatever the scale factor is, because that would not look good for normal content. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about video games from the early 90s, late 80s, that all really goes out the window. Um, you want a specific type of video processing for that, which the OSSC and the Framemeister do um, to get you that, you know, sharp, razor sharp pixel edges. It's the, kind of the same thing. Gotcha. So um, I, I guess just to get back then to the original, the original comparison, the, um, so when you, you have this image, it's RGB, 
or you have the component version of it done well or done correctly so they're identical um, it doesn't really matter what you use if some processors are going to compress the colors anyway uh, it wouldn't make the slightest bit of a difference then right yeah and that um, that is something that Steve and, and myself have talked about but we've never really had a chance to kind of explore is it's all well and good to uh, want to try to keep things in RGB color space, uh, but you may not know exactly what's going on at the display end. So any TV, for instance, that has a menu options where you can adjust hue, saturation, those type of things, that requires a color space translation anyway. So they're going to convert your RGB into something like YPVPR and allow you to op do digital operations on that and as part of that, your 444 RGB signal that came in may have gotten compressed along the way. So it's, it, I, it's very hard to generalize. Um, I, the, there has to be some displays that are doing that and other ones that are not. And I don't know anyone that has built up kind of a, a library of what displays are doing what. Neither um, do I, and based on all the, the searching I've tried to do, I'm not sure if many people in the gaming world have really brought this up before, so maybe we're scratching on new territory, but um, I, I know a lot of this is always, I mean, it's the same thing I, I say no matter what you're talking about with flat screens, a lot of this is so dependent on the TV that you have. Um, a few yep. years ago, I was lucky enough, I'm friends with a guy that does very high-end installations for homes, and I got like a $3,000 TV for like 800 bucks. Uh, and he, he calibrated it for me. We did the burn in. He set all the settings up. And it's, you know, I've seen the same model TV at somebody else's house that doesn't look this good. I'm so lucky and thankful, by the way, that I have this. But um, so I'm able to see a lot of detail differences on this TV just because of my friend who knows exactly what he's doing. He gets paid a ridiculous amount of money to do it. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of the things, too, when he was setting up like the professional grade Blu ray player, make sure to, you know, set it in the full RGB color space. But even then, I think a lot of the higher-end TVs, I'm going to speculate here, so I might be talking out of my ass, but I think um, I've heard somewhere that through the component inputs, uh, if you take the same image, so component video, um, mm -hmm. or you put it through a good quality component to HDMI converter, the TV will process that differently because they yep. pro they, it's possible that they read the HDMI and say, okay, well, this device is in the full RGB color space, or they read the component inputs and go, well, you know, it's components, uh, so it's probably going to be 422 anyway. And then on top of it, I've also read that there are TVs that, for the same compression processing reasons, will accept that image through HDMI at 444, compress it to 422, do its processing, and then chroma upsample it back to 444 before it gets to your display, the actual panel itself. And th so that's why this stuff gets so confusing for me, because I don't know that I would ever be able to tell that. With a magnifying glass, I don't know if I'd be able to tell that, uh, especially if they, you know, if it's done well. So, um, yeah. yeah it, very it, it's very complicated, and, and like you said, it, the same TV over different inputs could have different processing paths. So generalizing between TVs, you know, you can't say anything in particular about the same brand or even an individual TV. These are all very complicated things going on, and it's hard to say what TVs are doing what um, without specifically testing them. Um, gotcha. And you could come up with uh, test patterns that you fed into these inputs and um, 
would, would pretty quickly tell you kind of or give you an idea of what was going on mm -hmm. in terms of uh, compressing colors because um, that's really where you can see the differences is these artificial like video games or like um, test patterns that are designed specifically to, to sh ferret those things out. Gotcha. So I guess um, I, I guess there's two more things to mention in this because this is obviously going to be an ongoing discussion that may not ever get anywhere because of all of the different variables. Um, is there any any knowledge or, or any documentation on how some of the um, <clears throat> the sixth generation consoles uh, generate their colors? So anything with an HDMI output, it's all going to be you know whatever digitally, it's fine. It's pretty self-explanatory. Um, but the conversation that I saw online was about the GameCube and about how I, I, I could have read this wrong or, or maybe the person made a mistake, but somebody said that the GameCube internally on its chips actually generates a 422 image. And even if you use like the GameCube video or if you hack the uh, component cables for VGA, it's chroma upsampling to 444. Um, would that would that make any difference at all? Is that even true, or is that just something to table and come back to a different day because it's yet again too many variables? Yeah, I I don't know the specifics of how the GameCube is generating its videos. It's, it's certainly possible um, if it's generating RGB internally and then converting to component and throwing out some of the information. Um, there could be reasons to do that. Um, whenever you downsample an image, you always filter it first, or you should be filtering it first before you do that downsampling process. And so one reason I could think of that they might want to transmit 422 is if they're assuming that that's going to happen anyway along the way, they might want to choose their filters specifically for the type of content they're generating. I mean, that again, that's just speculation on my part. Um, no, I don't it really makes know. sense. Okay. Um, so basically then, um, you know, as I've said from day one, it all depends on your TV. So, and this actually would also make sense too as to why I've seen TVs, um, you know, I've seen a, a good CRT, high quality with component inputs that looked very good. And then I've seen an RGB modded CRT that looked phenomenal because when you're mm -hmm. skipping all the processing, like you said, as soon as you change the hue and the color, you're already changing the image. Um, that could also explain why doing a direct RGB mod to a consumer grain CRT looks that much better is because you're just skipping all of the TV's processing, not just colors, everything about mm -hmm. it. Um, so I guess it would be my guess then if you have an RGB modded TV or an RGB monitor, it really wouldn't matter what you stick through because there's no way in hell like a BVM would... Uh, I, I mean, I couldn't fathom putting a component signal into a BVM and having a BVM doing any kind of processing to that color. That Wouldn't that completely defeat the purpose of having that reference quality broadcast monitor? <laughs> so I guess if you're using a BVM, it wouldn't matter, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's possible that I don't have as much experience with uh, messing around with those as you do. Um, but like I said, if they have knobs on there that allow you to adjust hue and saturation, um, that requires a color space. Now, of course, that doesn't require that they throw out information in that mm -hmm. translated color space. Um, so it could still be the full 444, um, but they, there would be a translation there. Um, 
like that, you know, as we said at the beginning of this, um, it's fully invertible if done right. Uh, you, you're not losing quality just because you're in a different color space. Gotcha. Um, and I guess for people that uh, that are concerned about trying to tweak their images, uh, well, this is speculation, but I, kind of my gut feeling on this has always been that if, if you have a mid to low end flat panel TV, it doesn't matter. And if it looks good enough to you, then awesome. Um, if you have a higher end piece of equipment, something you've calibrated, something that could handle all this, you might start to notice the difference between a Framemeister and an OSSC. And especially if you have, uh, if you're doing any kind of screen captures for the point of research or comparison, um, you would definitely want a capture card that accepts the full color space. Cause I've seen a few capture cards that just do a shit job and compress everything badly. Um, not just the colors even. So yeah, that could be more than just the color space. That, that adds like, you know, another layer of complexity to all that is there are other things going on besides the color space that can do damage to your image along the way. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So I guess at the end of all this, maybe, um, the, uh, the color space, uh, discussion is kind of useless because it all depends on other factors that are more important anyway. <laughs> if you have shit equipment, you're going to get a shit signal if you have, you know, so, but it's still something I'm curious about and it's still, you know, um, I guess it's, it's, if, as long as the questions still keep coming up, it is something people are interested in. And if the, if the final answer ends up being, it doesn't matter. I'm still happy that I would have learned. So, uh, thanks for, for coming on and, and helping to, you know, educate all of us about this stuff because I have a better grasp now than I did, but I, I still think it's going to be a while before it really sinks in. And I truly understand how this is, works across all these different types of equipment and different TVs and stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Cool. Take care, man. I'll talk to you soon. You too. Bye. Well, that's it for this week. As always post down below and let me know any thoughts or comments or criticism. Um, if you're going to troll, go crazy with it. So I don't think you're not trolling and waste more time talking about it. <laughs> uh, and you know, thanks to everybody who participated in the Q and a stuff and all of the feedback from the NT mini, a lot of really great posts. And, uh, as always, I mean, I appreciated all of the perspectives, even, you know, everybody that agreed, disagreed, whatever else. So please keep them coming. And, uh, remember to subscribe to that other podcast. If you enjoy nerding out with us, because, uh, there's going to be a lot more to that in the future, you know, more guests, more topics, more myth busting and, you know, uh, more, more crazy Voltar doing stupid shit. So, uh, we hope to see you guys on that one as well. And I will see you all next week. 